Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. No greater faction than the action movie scene. Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. Your satisfaction, action on the silver screen. Get in the action on the Action Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to this episode of the Action Addicts Podcast. I'm your host Scott Wiley and today we're going to be talking about Spider-Man No Way Home. Get me pictures of Spider-Man is the phrase that immediately comes to mind and boy oh boy is this a film for the ages. Released in 2021, Spider-Man has an estimated budget of $200 million and at the time of recording the intro to this episode, it has a worldwide box office gross of $1.6 billion dollars and uh that's during a pandemic so i don't know if it would have made all of the money in the world if it had released when it wasn't a pandemic but i definitely think that this film well let's put it this way i love this film you're gonna hear about it this is a ridiculously long episode i apologize for that but let's be honest it's just one of those things where i want to talk about it and i'm not talking about it alone Unlike last week's episode, Commando, today we're going to be joined by Mike Scott of the Adkins Undisputed, the Action for Everyone podcast, and a bunch of other things that I'm sure you're aware of, because let's face it, if you listen to my show, you probably already listen to his. You're probably going to hear me repeat myself, but I just want to say right off the bat, Mike has been a terrific supporter of this show. He is one of the reasons why this show exists, he's one of the reasons why I decided to try it, and I've got to say... If it wasn't for him and a couple of other people who I'm going to be shouting out as the show goes on, then there's a pretty good chance that this show wouldn't exist. So thanks, Mike, because I know you're listening and you rock. And if you aren't listening to any of his stuff, make sure you listen to him when he comes on in a moment and you need to go and follow this guy. Because if you don't, trust me, you're missing out. Now, with that said, Spider-Man No Way Home probably is a film that needs no introduction. Now, it is without a doubt one of the biggest cultural bombshells that went off in 2021. It just completely obliterated everybody's expectations um, in terms of both what we wanted to see from the film, the box office, and really people's, or, well, critics anyway, opinion of what will and won't make money. Um, Unfortunately, this has had a rather interesting side effect and something that I don't really talk to Mike about that I want to take a minute and... I don't want to address it as such, but I do want to say something, and that's this really, really weird notion that Spider-Man No Way Home is contributing to the death of cinema as a whole. Now, this isn't specifically aimed at Spider-Man No Way Home, it is aimed at the MCU and superhero films in general, Uh, but Spider-Man No Way Home has kind of become the punching bag for a real, simple, yet irritating reason. The film made a shit ton of money, so naturally, everybody's films that didn't make, well, even, let's let's be honest, uh, are salty that a big tentpole superhero movie made a lot of money during a time when most good films aren't making money, and they think that their film should have made a lot of money, and unfortunately, there's a really small but vocal set of people that are like, yeah, well, that's not real cinema, 
And if you didn't go and see Steven Spielberg's newest film, if you didn't see Benicio Del Toro's newest film, if you, you know, if you're not listening to Martin Scorsese, then what are you doing? You know, these aren't real films. These are for babies. These are for children. Well, to that, I would say, shut the fuck up. And (laughs) I'm sorry, but I love all cinema. I love films done throughout all different eras, throughout all different genres, but superhero films are real cinema. And if you come out of No Way Home and you don't think that this is a real film, I don't know what to tell you. It has everything that I want out of a film. It has a good story. It has heart. It has emotion. They're real characters. Everybody that's in this feels like they contribute in some meaningful way. And by the end of the film, there has been a journey that almost all of the characters involved, even the villains, go through and come out the other end changed by what's happened and in my opinion so too does the audience yes you can just write this off as another superhero film and hell i've seen quite a few people write it off as nothing but fan service which again that's that's your decision whatever i'm not gonna waste my time arguing with you because clearly you didn't watch the same film as i did and we want different things from films and that's fine however I get really, really salty when people say that Spider-Man No Way Home is contributing to the death of cinema, and as a result, uh, MCU is contributing to the death of cinema. To that I would point out, point to any Spider-Man film that's been made since the original Spider-Man, and find one that flopped. Now, I'm not saying find me one that wasn't a good film, because there are two obvious films that spring to mind straight away, but none of them flopped. There's a reason for that, and the reason is, it's goddamn Spider-Man! I don't quite understand why people are treating Spider-Man like, say, the Eternals, who, yeah, they are a superhero group, and they're from Marvel Comics, but they ain't Spider-Man. Spider-Man has never been small-scale superhero. Spider-Man is the golden royalty of Marvel. Now, this is hard to believe, But Iron Man, Thor, Captain America, and Hawkeye, the Avengers, were not really ever considered Marvel's A-team. They were the B-team. The Fantastic Four and the X-Men were Marvel's A-teams, and Spider-Man has always been the Golden Boy, Stan Lee's creation, and ever since he first appeared in the tail end of a random compilation of stories that they were just trying to throw away and get out the door, and that issue sold out purely because of Spider-Man, they've never looked back. Spider-Man has been all over the globe. It is probably the only superhero show I can think of that had a completely different version of the character in Japan, which pretty much changed the way they made their tokusatsu shows, and at the same time had a different version for the American audiences. I can't think of any other hero that did that. They're the same thing, but they're nothing alike. They're both Marvel Spider-Man. And this was, what, 40 years before we had even the hint that somebody else other than Peter Parker could be in the suit, and yet Japan had a different one. Japan had a completely different Spider-Man. And his cultural impact cannot be understated. Spider-Man has hit the ground running From the moment that character was born, he was a success. People identified him, people loved him. From the moment that character came into cartoons, it was a success. From the moment the character came into live action, it blew the doors off and said to everybody, 
yeah, you've seen superhero films before, but get out of the way, because now I'm here. And we had seen superhero films before. We'd had Superman, we'd had Batman, we'd had Blade, we'd had X-Men. We'd had a bunch of other weird and wonderful things in between that I'm not going to all list here. But my point I'm trying to make is, stop saying that Spider-Man is the reason why other people's films are failing. Spider-Man has been kicking other films' ass for a very long time, but the other films didn't fail really at all. I I can't think of a single other film where this has happened before, but because this one has received so much love and adoration, it's like it set people off. People just want to blame nerd culture, geek culture, for the death of their beloved cinema, and I love cinema, I think I made that very clear, and I make it very clear, you know, in in episodes to come, but the nerds are cinema people. (laughs) We are the same person, You're, you're, you're attacking yourself here, guys. We are all one big nerdy community, whether you like comic books, video games, movies, there's a huge Venn diagram of overlap of those three things, and the biggest problem is, the ones who don't overlap with comic book, video games, and anime, cartoons, whatever it is you're into, they get really, really grumpy when a, a a film that they think is true cinema, you know, it's serious business going to see a film. You're supposed to feel things, man. You're supposed to have life-changing experiences. You are to come out of there a changed individual, moved by the performance of the actor on the screen. You must watch things of culture. Yes, cool, you can do that too. But that's never going to be the thing that breaks a billion dollars at the box office and reignites cinemas and has 20 screenings across all the screens of a cinema in one day. That's my rant over for today. I'm going to hand you over to the past me now, who's a lot happier, and you're going to listen to me and Mike really geek out over Spider-Man. I'd very much advise listening to this podcast in parts, because I have no idea how long that rant was, but I've just made this infinitely longer, so this is going to be a well over two hours, and I'm sorry about that, but I hope you enjoy it. Sit back, relax, and it's time to get into the action with myself and Mike Scott on Spider-Man No Way Home. All right, and joining me now, we have Mike, who you may know from a podcast called Adkins Undisputed. You may also know him from Action for Everyone and a few other places as well, because he's been about, well, pretty much damn near everywhere if you love the action community. And he's a pretty big horror guy as well. So if you're into either of those films, I'm sure you've heard his name before. But why don't you say hello? (laughs) How's it going, everybody? I love your optimism there. (laughs) Yeah, no, Thank you so much for for inviting me on. I'm excited. I'm excited to be a part of this new venture that you're doing, man. It's awesome. I love it. Yes. Depending on when this episode goes live, ladies and gentlemen, this is probably going to be one of the earlier episodes that you hear because the way I'm going to be recording them and the way I'm going to be releasing them might not perfectly sync up. So I'm going to try and not reference stuff that uh, has or has not already been filmed when I'm talking. But with that said, today we're going to be talking about Spider-Man No Way Home, a film that I think it's safe to say has taken the world by storm. Would you say that's a good assessment? 
Yeah, uh, I mean, at the time we're recording, it's it it just crossed, I think, one point one billion dollars um, in the pandemic, which is uh, unreal. Um, it's people, the people they love, they love their Peter Parker. There's just no question about it. They do, they do, and you know, if you if you love Peter Parker, uh, this is definitely the film to go and see because you're gonna get so much Peter Parker, you won't know what to do with it. <laughs> Yep, and I there's should... a lot of theaters everywhere here. <laughs> oh, yes. And I should stress, ladies and gentlemen, that there's no way that we could talk about this film spoiler-free. It's just not that type of film. Um, if you want to have a spoiler-free review, it's this. It's good. Go watch it. Stop listening. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to start spoiling the heck out of this because I genuinely don't think I could... I mean, I can because I've done it, but... There's just no point in trying to talk about this without talking about spoilers, because even in the first hour of the film, there are spoilers. Um, for example, I think before we go any further, Mike, what was your thoughts on the film? What what was your first impressions when you came out the cinema? Yeah, so I I will say a, a couple of things. Um, one first question: Can I swear on this? Because as you know, I swear like a sailor. Or do you want me to keep it clean? No, you can swear on that. I was. Uh, I'm I'm self-censoring myself due to habit. Uh, once other people start swearing, I'll start swearing as well. <laughs> I'll try not to swear as much as I normally do. But uh, but um, so I had actually seen the leaks for this because I, I, I going into this, I had real concerns about this movie. I, I just thought it looked like a mess. Uh, and we'll get into it more, but I was, I'm not the biggest fan of the first two John Watts Spider-Man movies. Um, and okay. so I'd actually leaks and and read uh and this is a reminder of course that reading spoilers is not the same as watching the movie it's not a substitute for the movie because i saw some stuff in the spoilers that i was just like i remember telling my wife i'm like i'm gonna really really hate this thing <laughs> uh, and so i kind of went in with like some some wolverine claws bared yeah guess what happened I flipped my shit for this movie. I loved this so much. <laughs> I came out just bouncing off the walls. Um, it was everything that I wanted it to be and nothing that I was worried that it was going to be. There's still some narrative choices they make that I don't love, but I think they handle them so well that it, it ultimately didn't matter uh, that I didn't like the decision that they made because they nailed the execution of those decisions. Um, so I, I friggin' love this thing for people who don't know Sam Raimi's Spider-Man two is my favorite Spider-Man movie. It's my favorite movie of all time. Um, Into the Spider-Verse is my second favorite. I, this is right up there with those. I mean, this is knocking on the door. Um, I, I thought this thing was just absolutely terrific. That pretty much echoes my sentiments. Um, I, too had unfortunately uh not read the spoilers but i saw the photos um that were circulating i can't remember if i wanted to see them or if they just came to me which is often how these things happen in this wonderful modern age of technology that we live in um but i pretty much wrote them off because funnily enough it's kind of echoed in the film um i kind of follow mj's point of view of if you expect disappointment then you can never be disappointed and that was pretty much my mindset with this film is 
I think everybody collectively knew what they wanted from it and how we got there. No one cared. We just wanted to see it. But everybody I felt in the, my screening, at least, was kind of expecting it not to happen because, you know, it's been two years of not having good things and not having a particularly good time in life. So why would a silly Marvel film be the thing that gives us what we want when so often it's sometimes films don't? But uh, we got what we wanted. <laughs> Arguably, this is the first year where Marvel didn't give me what I wanted. Uh, you know, I've been really struggling with Marvel this year because I, I've said this before. I feel like Endgame, something broke me or something broke in me in Endgame because I loved Endgame so much. I got the end of the story that I wanted. And so I was kind of like, am I just kind of done with Marvel now? Because Black Widow left me cold. Shang-Chi really left me cold. Um, I haven't even seen the Eternals yet. I thought most of the Disney Plus shows were at best okay. Um, and so I was kind of like, am I just sort of over Marvel? And and so coupled with the stuff that I was dreading about what I'd seen from the spoilers and my general ennui about Marvel, I just, there was nothing about this movie that excited me. And so I've never been more happy to be wrong in my life because it did give me exactly what I wanted. Um, almost to the extent of, I didn't even know what I needed. Uh, there was, there was one character who I've already one actor and one character who I've been riding high on this year already anyway, because he's in one of my other favorite movies of the year. Um, tick, tick, boom. I, yep. Tick, tick, boom. <laughs> I, how much I needed Andrew Garfield back. Like I was, I was not prepared for how much I needed Andrew Garfield back. And that was one of the things that really just made the movie so delightful for me. It's funny. Um, I, uh, I, I'm pretty much on the same boat as you. Black Widow didn't work for me for a number of different reasons. And it wasn't the actors. Um, I, I don't, I cannot recall being so disappointed in getting good talent and not really knowing what to do with them as when I watch Black Widow, um, especially getting Ray Winston to play the villain of the piece, who I don't even know why they bothered because anyone could have played that role. And then... Yeah, the, sorry, on. the one for me that was Olga Kurilenko. You're going to get Olga fucking yep. Kurilenko in your movie and that's what you're going to use her for and do with her? Are you kidding me right now? Yeah, I, I'm with you, man. Yeah. Yeah, she was, well, to be honest, I could, all of them felt that way to me. Um, yeah, Taskmaster, I could, that's a whole nother episode I could rant about, but no, I'm, I'm exactly the same as you. Shang-Chi, I think I liked a bit more, but I think that was mostly because I went in hearing everybody else's low expectations. And like you, I still haven't seen the Eternals. So I must admit that it, I think a lot of people went in expecting not the worst, but they weren't expecting to have everything that they'd heard about actually come true. Um, for me, I dared to hope, and I'm the, the word dare was used strategically there, when Matthew Murdoch came on the screen. And uh, admittedly, he wasn't there for very long. But the second I saw him, a little part in the back of my brain went, oh, he was in the photos we saw. Could that mean? <laughs> so, I don't know. Well, and again, execution, you know, because we are going to spoil this. Like, I just I loved the. 
you know, Peter saying, thank you so much. How'd you do this? And him saying, I'm, I'm a good lawyer. And then the brick comes through the window and he catches it. And Peter's yep. like, how'd you do that? I'm a very good lawyer. Like, like that was so great. And I loved it too, because not to go too deep in the weeds, but so much of Daredevil, Matt, who I love is the guilty, the guilt ridden, uh, Frank Miller, Matt Murdoch. Yep. But there's also you know, the Mark Wade, you know, the Stan Lee and, and, and then bookending it with the Mark Wade, Matt Murdoch is sort of this jovial, sarcastic, fun kind of daredevil. And so it was kind of nice to see brooding Matt Murdoch have a little fun with catching the brick and being like, I'm a very good lawyer. Like I, I just, I, I, I totally like fist pumped during that scene. No question. Everybody in the cinema I saw it in laughed so much at that line. Um, and then I heard a, a chorus of whispers of people going, that's Daredevil. And followed by, <laughs> who's Daredevil? And then, was, <laughs> and then you could hear everybody having to explain why that was so awesome to their significant others or their cousins or their friends or whoever it was that they brought to the cinema screening. Um, but yeah, I... Um, I didn't get the over-the-top reactions I've seen online in some cinemas, but I think that's as much to do with the fact that uh, I'm in the UK and our, our our cinema audiences don't do cheering and loud loud noises in cinemas. The cinema is a very important, serious business. You don't go there to make loud noises. You go there to be entertained in the art of theatre, dear boy. But obviously, your comic book movie is slightly different and it's slowly changing, but we're not there yet. We're not like the ones I've seen online where people just go off on one like you know they're at a football match <laughs> yeah and i i didn't get that in mind either because we actually i still am not going back to theaters for the most part i don't feel comfortable doing it here in the u.s um but uh we we actually rented out a theater for this so it was just there was only about 10 of us all good friends all vaccinated um so it, it, there wasn't a huge crowd uh but we did all have those reactions so it was still it was fun it was fun and it's the only way you know those reactions are awesome but i look at those and i see uh, to me, I just look and see, I can't imagine that many people being in a theater, like being in a theater with that, <laughs> you know, um, for me, but, uh, but it was great. You know, we, we rented it out. It was cheap enough. I mean, it wasn't really any more than an IMAX ticket. Um, and it was, it was a blast. It was the perfect, for me, it was the perfect way to see the movie. Yeah. I must admit that this sound good. Um, I, I remember you saying that on Twitter and, uh, yeah, we can't do that here. <laughs> Rent, renting out a cinema is either way too expensive, like it's like a, a corporate day out is the only real way it's going to happen. Um, or it has to be like an independently owned cinema, which really don't exist here. Um, they do exist, obviously, because places like Fighting Film Spirit Festival have used them and there are the occasional ones that slip through and will do their own programming. But most of the independent cinemas that did exist in the UK kind of died um uh, quite a number of years ago now uh where i grew up had a really really nice one called the plaza and again it wasn't really independent there was a handful of them but uh, they're all gone now they everything here is a chain cinema so it it was a very different experience because we had spider-man showing i think on every screen on showcase cinema which is where we went and they were showing it every half hour i have never 
seen a, a film get so much coverage on a cinema as Spider-Man. They knew that everybody was coming to see this. And then I tried to book a ticket and saw why. Because, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, they 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 sold out like instantly. Like I had to, we were going to go see it the day it released. We couldn't actually get a ticket until three days later. And, even, and that was packed. Um, everybody was wearing masks and full disclosure for those people that don't know, I work for the NHS. So does my partner. So we've been vaccinated and boosted before everybody else even had the option, not, not trying to sound like a bragging, but we're kind of just used to wearing masks. I mean, I used to work in surgery. So people that complain that wearing masks for long periods of time, it's like, well, I, I do this regardless of the state of the world. So <laughs> it doesn't bother me in that way. Yeah, you know, and for me, the thing, the thing with with the theaters, I was already even before the we're kind of going off the rails here, but that's what this is all about, right? Yeah. Uh, even before the pandemic, I was winding down my theater. I have um, not to overshare, but I have pretty severe social anxiety, and the pandemic has just made it worse to the point where I'm almost an agoraphobiac. So it, it doesn't. I, you know, I remember 20 years ago, I saw like 200 movies in the theater and the year before the pandemic, I think I saw five uh, because I just don't like being in a closed space with that many people and audiences suck for the most part. You know, almost every theater, I every yeah. movie I saw was a terrible experience. The turnarounds now, the windows are so small and um, my home theater setup is such that I just I don't really get joy out of going to the theater. This was one that I made an exception for. Um, and it was, it was admittedly, this one was worth it. Um, but, you know, I didn't like, I didn't see the matrix in the theater. I didn't see no time to die in the theater. I didn't see venom in the theater. Like I didn't go to any of those. This was, this was Spider-Man and I felt like I could muster up the ability to, to make it a, you know, to make the exception, but yeah. uh, I'm just not a theater guy anymore for me. I, I'd rather watch my movies at home. I know that's offensive to cinema files everywhere because you can't really watch a movie if you're not watching it in the theater. But uh, I would say, no, I'm watching your movie. So you can either have a choice. I can watch your movie at home or I can just not watch your movie. Take your pick. But um, yeah. And like I said, I did I did make an exception for. So uh, I'm I'm gonna lead us back to home in a minute. Um, but uh, I must admit that for some There's unbeknownst reason, home, you can't lead us back. There's no way home. <laughs> I was I was waiting for that. Ah <laughs> uh, no. So I don't know why this has come about again because I feel like we have this conversation on the internet between film people every so often. But the whole cinema versus watching it at home debate is one that i just don't understand however uh when was this uh, a couple months ago i got to see the original alien for its 40th something anniversary they put it back on the big screen here locally so obviously i'm too young to have seen the original in cinema um as was my partner but we both love the alien film so we made the effort to go and see that and I think me and the four other people that were in there thought it was great. Uh, but uh, I will admit, certain films do benefit from a big screen experience. And I don't just mean a big TV. I mean, there is something about the way it looks on a cinema screen 
that is preferable to having it at home? Because I've seen Alien multiple times at home over the years, from when it was on god-awful VHS to being on Blu-ray, and I noticed so many more things when I saw it in the cinema, but also it scared the shit out of me at certain points, and I knew they were coming, but it was so different, and I think I... Again, going completely on a tangent now, I think that everyone can enjoy film regardless of whether you are actually seeing it in a cinema or whether you're watching it at home. As you said, most people, admittedly not everybody, but film people tend to have setups that are comparable to small cinemas anyway. My dad is the same as you. He has a 7.1 surround sound system with a subwoofer that could shatter windows if he turns it up too high. I think he's got a 64-inch TV that's mounted to the wall. The walls are pitch black. You know, going to his place back in the day to watch films is like going to the cinema. He's got massive comfy armchairs that are, nothing you'll find in a cinema will match those chairs. So, like you say, I don't have time for those people. Watch films how you want to watch them, people. But I do, I do agree with you. There is something magical. If you can get a good experience, that's the problem for me is, is I've just had such shitty experiences, but if you can get that good experience, you know, one of my favorite cinematic experiences was um, my second year in law school. I had just finished finals and, and a, a unique thing that happens in law school is you always get sick during finals and your body manages to hold it together <laughs> until your last test. And then you fall apart. Okay. But that night was, and this is, you know, because I'm an old, this is back when movies premiered at midnight, none of this 7 PM shit for all you Gen Z folk, you had to commit and stay the fuck up to go see a movie. And I uh, should that, stress, I'm not Gen Z carry on. I know you <laughs> that's, that's, but, um, but, uh, I had tickets. I had a ticket for fellowship of the ring. I would never do this now, you know, post pandemic world, but I was like, you know, screw it. I'm going to go see fellowship of the ring. So I'm sitting there at, on the second row, I think, because you didn't have assigned seats at that point. Yeah. Uh, with my throat slowly closing up at midnight, somewhat delirious and watching a movie that I didn't think could possibly exist on a 60 foot screen um just enraptured you know what i mean so i totally get it I, I i'm not i'm not one of those people who's also like people you know like theaters matter theater's important i'm not saying we should shut them all down um because there is something about that there is an experience if you have a good crowd a good experience um but I am pro that people should have the, that accessibility matters. And so people yeah. should have the, um, you know, I know a lot of people have bitched about the HBO max decision to go day and date with everything. And it hasn't really worked out for them financially. Although I think there's arguments to be made that their theatrical slate this year was already going to be really dicey given some of the chances they were taking on some of their movies. Mm -hmm. But I, I support that. I like, giving people that choice of you can watch it you know and if you don't want to do it for free on hbo max do the premium vod thing you know i paid 30 bucks for uh for bill and ted 
uh, last year. <laughs> that was day and date. And I was happy to pay 30 bucks for it to watch it at home. Shit, for a, for a movie that I really want to see, I would probably pay 50 bucks for it to watch it at home, um, which is, you know, more than the price of a of movie tickets. Yep. So give people the option and, and let them do it. I just, and I think that's where we're going. I think it's just a matter of they haven't figured out the optimal, um, balance of that yet, you know, dropping it for free clearly isn't the right answer. Um, but I think if I remember correctly, I've seen a thing that says that in 2022 they're going to give cinemas exclusivity for 45 days and then it will go online and then eventually get a home release because they realized that dropping it the day it comes out in cinemas uh means that there's a really good high definition sometimes 4k version on piracy sites within half an hour of that happening and then they're wondering why no one's going to pay for it and as we have talked about many times before um, I don't support piracy, but there are reasons that you sometimes have to do it. And I don't have HBO Max in the UK. It's one of the few services that doesn't exist here. So it can be very frustrating when everybody moans at you. Why don't you just watch it for free online if it's not in your cinemas? It's like, I would love to. I would love to give people my money. <laughs> That's something that you and I have talked about a lot, right? And it's a very complicated thing, but I agree. I, you know, the 45-day window is, is great. Yeah. I mean, that's how I want the time to die. I didn't go see it. There was a lot of people talking about it, but to be honest with you, like six weeks, especially if you're a, a working professional where you've got a family and you're going to a job every day, six weeks is nothing. Yeah, like No Time to Die was out on premium video on demand before I even knew it. And so yeah. I, I do maybe that 45 day window is kind of the the sweet spot um, because it's it's long enough that people that the theaters can get some money and, and people can go see it in the theater if they want, but it's short enough that the people like me that want to wait for it to come home. Don't feel like we're waiting for months and months and months and, and missing all the conversations and, and, and that we may want to participate in and stuff like that. Uh, you know, I, again, I'm an old, I'm old enough to remember when it was like a nine month window for stuff, you yep. know, and then, another six months for it to come on like HBO or Showtime or that. Um, you know, that was, if you missed it in the theater, you were waiting for a real long time to be able to see that movie. Uh, yep. so yeah, yeah. The 45 day window is nice. I, I, I think that's, that's, that's what they're working on. I think that's a good, good spot. Yeah, it. I agree. But going back home, <laughs> ah, this is going to be a long podcast. I can tell. Uh, the film starts off having to address what happened at the end of Far From Home with Mysterio having revealed Peter Parker's identity as Spider-Man, which I won't lie, I was not a fan of, but at the same time had a pretty good idea of where they were going to go storyline-wise. I, I had a sneaking suspicion that the One More Day storyline was going to be where they went. And then after everybody and their mother screamed Mephisto at every WandaVision episode, I thought that even more. And then he didn't show up. So then I was like, oh, okay, what's what? Uh, but uh, I also think that that first, well, what was it about 40 minutes of the film was mostly just so that they could have a storyline to trick everybody what they could make trailers out of so that no one would see the Spider-Verse stuff coming. 
obviously that didn't quite work because of leaks, but I think that is pretty much what that whole first 40 minutes is for to go. The storyline is going to be about uh, Peter having to deal with the legal consequences of his actions, potentially having to go to court and all of this, but actually now we're going to get rid of that right in the pretty much after the first half hour and then a new, new thing's going to start. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. You know, and obviously I was, I was the same way. And that was one of the other reasons I was dreading this movie because I, I try and keep it positive, but I'm going to be a little negative here for a sec. I detest one more day. I absolutely like original sin is maybe the only other Spider-Man story arc that I hate more than, than one more day um, or not original sin sins of the, whatever one where Norman Osborn bangs Gwen Stacy, um, oh. but either. <laughs> yes. I hate one more day. And I know there was a lot of weird stuff behind the scenes on that, but I just think even if you wanted to undo Peter and Mary Jane's marriage, that was the clumsiest, most God awful way to do it. And so knowing that they were going to springboard from that, I was like, oh, but I did also kind of have in the back of my mind. Well, you know what other Marvel story arc I hate? Civil War. And they really did a good job on the Civil War movie, I thought. And so I'm like, OK, so maybe they're going to just take one more day and springboard off of it and do something different. And sure enough, they did. Uh, I think somewhere. Probably not because he's got such an ego that he can't be faced. But I would hope that somewhere J. Michael Straczynski is sitting there going, oh, oh, I should have done it that way. I didn't really need the Mephisto thing. I should have just done it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm also not a big fan of that particular storyline. Um, I, th I think that more creative people were able to take that storyline and do some interesting things afterwards. But I also feel like sometimes you can make a good thing out of a bad thing. I mean, all you have to do is look at Sylvester Stallone's career to see that it's possible. But sometimes people just make stupid decisions and then someone else has to come in and make it work. And it's not like, oh, this was this was a plan, which is quite often what Marvel gets gets away with these days is everything that marvel does is planned it's not all planned so it's really not like a lot of this stuff they're making it up as they go and then they go oh yes we had this plan from the beginning ah oh. <laughs> um but no i agree i think that it was a clever idea to springboard off of it and it also i think they knew that a lot of people were gonna make that connection who know the comics and that in and of itself i think was done deliberately to throw people off Everybody was looking at the Mephisto angle. Oh, Doctor Strange is in it. So there's magic. It's definitely going to be the one more day storyline. Is this right? Is this real? And I think the hope was, and it was working for a time, that no one would then think about, so who is the actual villains? But then, of course, stuff got leaked. So the first trailer, hello, Peter. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm glad they didn't do the Mephisto stuff in that, you know, because I also really kind of like what they did with Doctor Strange here, because everybody was like, why would Doctor Strange do this? And I'm like, well, did you really think we've gotten, have we really gotten that much character development from Strange? I mean, he's always, even through Infinity War and Endgame, he was still kind of an arrogant douche and the fact i love that they set up that he's like bitter that wong is now the sorcerer supreme because 
he yep. got blipped five years. Um, and so it does. I thought it, w- it was actually very clever and very realistic that he would take this chance, which it turns out, as he explains, is not that big of a chance, not that risky of a spell, but for the pack fact that peter screws it up um which i think was kind of sort of the perfect blend of those personalities and and the way that that could turn into a disaster because you've got the wrong mix of people trying to do this thing you know uh yeah i mean the entire marvel universe the the entire mcu is built on tony stark screwing shit up so i kind of like the idea now that the new forward mcu is built on dr strange and peter parker screwing shit up (laughs) it 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 consistency there yeah um it's funny actually because I actually like the fact that for the Doctor Strange bits, they showed that he was his original instinct was to just say, "Well, too bad, kid." You know, it's just how life is. But then he thought about it, and he was like, "Actually, you you know, you watch Tony die. You were blipped for five years as well, and we've been all through all this crap together. So, is it really fair to let you have to deal with this as well when?" realistically it's the superhero life that's kind of screwed everybody up and i think the fact that peter was only interested in helping ned and mj as well had a big part in why strange chose to help him because i've seen the film twice um we actually went back and saw it the other night uh and this time around because i knew where the storyline was going something that i didn't pick up on throughout the entire film is right from the word go peter struggling to decide whether or not everything that's going on is his problem or another way to put it would be his responsibility and i totally missed that until it becomes obvious but this time around it was like oh yeah it's literally right there from the word go the whole story is whether or not are these problems peter's to deal with and it starts with him choosing to try and shortcut it by going to dr strange rather than as he then later says calling the college and actually trying to talk to someone like the rest of us would do yeah, yeah, and it, which I totally get, though, you know, I, I, I loved, I thought that was actually really nicely set up, because, look, if I had a magical wizard that I could go to for my problems, I'm not sure that I would think to just make a phone call first, right? Like, yep. I'm a wizard, right? This is why I'm glad I do, like, shit like the Force and Harry Potter magic doesn't actually exist, because I would be so goddamn lazy <laughs> if I, and so I... I thought it did make sense. The other thing we need to remember is, you know, Peter's 17, 18 in this. He's still an idiot. He's still a kid. Yep. And that was one of the I didn't like about the first two John Watts movies is he was too much of an idiot. I didn't think he was a realistic idiot. This one, he's a realistic idiot to me. He's died. He's come back to life. His entire life has been turned upside down and a wizard did it. He's got a wizard. He can literally say a wizard did it. So why wouldn't you go <laughs> like that makes perfect sense to me. Um, yeah. The, the other and- thing as well is sorry to cut you off is because I literally just had this thought whilst you were saying it is I can remember being in uh, in primary school, which might not mean anything to you because our schools work differently, but I was very young. Um, and, uh, I remember being taught how to use a calculator and I could remember one of the lessons that the teacher, he was a very good teacher. Um, he taught everybody how to use a calculator and then he put up a load of sums, nine of which were really complicated, 
The 10th one was so simple that I, we could do it with our brains. Everyone in the room used the calculator. And that was the lesson is you give people a tool to solve a problem and they stop using their own problem solving stuff. It happens to everyone. So like you say, of course, he's going to go to the wizard first. He's not thinking about solving his own problems because realistically, he's never had to. He's always been with Tony Stark. Then he got with Doctor Strange in Infinity Saga. He had all the other heroes around him. So like you say, it was that moment of, oh, yeah, right. I could just do this myself. Oops. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and the other thing is, is, you know, when you're 17, you have no, whether you're a superhero or not, you have no perspective. Everything in the world feels like the biggest thing in the yep. world. You know what I mean? And and so all you want to do is run and hide or all you want to do is make the problem go away. You don't, you're not beaten down by life like the rest of us where we realize these problems don't just go away. Um, and so I thought it was, again, I, when I read the spoilers, I was just like, Oh, both these characters are idiots. Like this is terrible. I can't believe they're doing this. And then when I saw the actual execution, and you're also bringing very talented actors like Tom Holland and Benedict Cumberbatch to the scene. You get nuance that's just not there when you're reading a synopsis of something, right? You're yeah. you're not you're not seeing those because I love that you mentioned that that Strange was initially like, no, solve your own problems, but then it's like, and I and I love that you get that come not to jump ahead, but you get that coming back at the end of when Peter's asking him to make everybody forget that Peter Parker exists. And, and he says, um, you know, if you do this, the people that love, we will forget the, we, the people that love yeah, you, you yeah. know, to say we, and you realize that like, no, they went through some shit, like strange cares about this kid now. Um, and so of course he's going to want to try and help him. Of course he's going to want to ease his pain because the whole, because the other thing I, going off all over the place here but the other thing is people forget he's an arrogant prick but he's also a doctor like dr strange's entire deal is helping and healing people that's yep. his entire thing and so of course he's going to want to heal this issue that peter's having um in the most arrogant way possible but still his interest his impulse is pure and that that did not come across when i was reading the synopsis at all and that that is so much about how the actors are playing these characters. And that was one of the things that is just absolutely adored about this movie. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, I do remember the, the, the leaks where they said about strange potentially doing this spell, but again, I, I didn't, I didn't really think much of it one way or the other. I was the same in terms of he's really cool with wiping out people's memories. And then I thought, why doesn't he use that more often? Because <laughs> this could solve solved a few problems previously with that, um, and then they even say in the film, "Oh yeah, we've used the spell for much less." You have? Do you remember this? No. Well, there you go. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that arguably leads into one of my favorite bits in the entire film. Then, which is when, after a bit of conversation, Peter then decides to go and track down the head of the college or the person that he needs to talk to anyway. And we get the introduction of Doc Ock, Alfred Molina. And even though I'd seen it in the trailer like seven times by the time I actually saw the film, 
it still didn't stop me from losing my mind. Like the the inner child in me was very happy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Moline is great. Um, again, Spider Man Two is my favorite movie of all time, so obviously I was I was very excited, and I, I loved. I kind of loved how it all played together. I also loved the way that um, it was. One other thing that I really want to say about this movie, and it started in this scene, way better action than typically from a Marvel movie. Yes. Uh, and definitely way better action than the other two John Watts movies, which I thought the action front of those movies were just garbage. Um, and, and this one, everybody seemed to bring their everything was clear. There was a, a much more tactile feel to everything that was going on, even though I'm sure it was 90% green screen. It didn't all feel like it was on green screen. Um, and I loved the narrative arc of that, of Peter saving the lady from MIT and her being like, all right, I'm going to talk to, you know, I'm going to talk to everybody. Uh, yeah. You, you really are. You're not a menace. You really are a hero. Um, and that, again, is. This is the first John Watts, and I don't want to sound like an old man yelling at a cloud here, but <laughs> Spider-Man in the MCU has never felt like Spider-Man for me because so much of Spider-Man is. So much of his life is difficult with every gift yeah. there's curse right i mean that's what toby Maguire says it's this is my gift it is my curse i'm, I'm gonna I, come back to that at the end <laughs> i just never felt like mcu peter has had much of a curse and this is the first movie where i'm really like okay now we're seeing these consequences but we're also seeing the way the inherent goodness of peter parker shifts the world around him you know he convinces this lady he's a hero through nothing other than just being him and doing what he does. Um, I thought this was just a terrific scene. So uh, there's a couple of points I want to say to that. Uh, first of all, I agree. Um, I, I'm going to get into that even more in a bit, but Tom Holland, because, <laughs> partly I suspect because he couldn't talk about anything else in the film because he's famously unable to keep spoilers to himself. Um, so I think he learned a lot about how the film was made so that he could talk about technical aspects of filmmaking when he was doing his press tour. But he's been talking a lot about how the film was shot, how the film was made. And he said something that I definitely noticed, which is that once the spell happens, the style of filmmaking tries to imitate or homage to the way Sam Raimi made his Spider-Man films and even to a lesser degree, the Andrew Garfield films. But again, I don't think they were trying to emulate that because that was a bit more generic for one of a better phrase. Um, but the Raimi films especially had... These days, I, I hear a lot of people say that they had a unique way of doing action. I would argue that you need to watch more films that were made in the 2000s. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of the superhero films were done that way. It's just that Spider-Man has a lot of nostalgia and the others don't. <laughs> But that aside, I agree with you that the action was a lot clearer. And I also think that some of that comes down to the fact that they understood that they wouldn't get away with the older cast that coming that is coming back just being thrown into CGI goop because I don't think that would have gone down well with everybody. What I was surprised about, although admittedly the second time I watched it, I did notice it a tad more, 
was uh, Doc Ock's tentacles are entirely CGI in this film. And I could have sworn that at points they actually had used puppets when they did the close-ups, but no, he was just on a harness. And that even the second time I watched it, I was impressed by that. Yeah, they they looked good. They they absolutely looked good. Um, I I still think they don't look quite as good as they do in Spider Man Two, but also that's not necessarily the point of this. You know this movie so I, it didn't bother me as much but i do think they look good um better than a lot you know i will say damn sure better than the dragons at the end of shang chi you know like um <laughs> like they look they look good uh so i i have no complaints about that yeah yeah and uh i also well a they used de-aging tech on Molina so that he really did look like he just walked out of the end of Spider-Man 2, which still confuses my brain whenever I see him. But also, I thought the interactions between him and Tom Holland's Peter were accurate and on point, whereas I was really worried going into this film that they would spend too much time with the current MCU characters taking the make out of the Sam Raimi characters because they lean much more heavily into how they are in the comics or in the 60s and 70s comics at least um so I was happy that they treated most of them like the genuine threats that they actually are and in the case of Molina you know he has the conversation with him about nanotech and how well he's done but then that actually turns out to be his undoing which I just thought was hilarious yeah yeah absolutely um yeah, there's really only the one joke where they make fun of his name being Otto Octavius. I mean, that's really the only one dig. And uh, and that actually was a joke for me that didn't land, uh, because that is one thing I don't like about the MCU is the constant undercutting of the goofiness of all of this stuff. Um, but that's just I'm used to that out of the MCU. But other than that, they treated everybody. I mean, Shit, Jamie Foxx is, you know, not to jump ahead, but he's treated better in this than he is in Amazing Spider-Man 2, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, that, that wasn't hard, to be fair. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it. Uh, I, I'm with you. And obviously, you know, we'll get to what they do with Willem Dafoe, where they oh, we yes. get a whole, whole arc, you know, and a whole actual character arc with him in this movie, which I was absolutely not expecting. I was not expecting for Defoe to get so much to do in this. No. Um, We're going to probably cut to Defoe in just a second, but for those people that obviously can't see where I'm recording from, behind me is a lot of Power Rangers stuff. And uh, when you said about the MCU kind of taken the mick out of their own source material i agree with you that irritates me as well i don't mind it when it's from spider-man because him taking the mick out of his own villains is kind of his thing however uh i really really don't like it when adaptations are almost embarrassed by what it is they're adapting and they feel the need to point it out to the audience where they're like, ha look, it's so silly. We think it's silly too, but you know, we've, we've just got to, got to roll with it. So, so do you. It's like, no, it doesn't have to be silly. The, the name Dr. Otto Octavius is not the weirdest name I have heard in real life this week. So I don't understand why they found that name funny. However, 
That said, I did find it funny when they then said that they were looking for a giant green elf when they were describing Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin costume. <laughs> Again, that that works because in the real in the not that I want this to say this is in the real world, but if you were going to if you'd never seen the Green Goblin before, you'd probably describe him as a giant green elf. Like that yep. makes sense. Like like I don't understand why you would just laugh at somebody's name. Like that's just rude, you know. Like I mean, like um. And so for me, that's that is, and I love that you brought up the Power Rangers because one of the things you and I both love about Sentai uh is is uh and and tokusatsu in general is the just unrelenting earnest sincerity like the just the 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 big ridiculous emotions that all those series wear on their sleeves and i feel like for the most part this movie nails that other than a handful of times where it undercuts it but for the most part this is a big dumb and I, I don't mean dumb in a bad way big dumb tokusatsu uh movie yeah. you know uh it, it's it's got big emotions and it wears everything on its sleeve that was just the one joke that really it, it didn't land for me but it was fine i moved on from it quickly i mean they didn't they didn't make a big deal out of it so i moved on from it quickly yeah and it, it you know it, it then led into because i'm gonna i'm gonna jump ahead because otherwise we're gonna be here describing bit by bit of the film forever <laughs> We we then got uh, an introduction to Sandman and Electro, which I knew Sandman was in it, but I was really curious why. Uh, because I remember saying to my partner Jade before we went and saw it, I don't understand why Sandman's a villain. Because if they're coming from their respective films, Sandman wasn't really a villain. I mean, he was, but he didn't end as a bad guy. And then the fact that they started and he was like, Hey, Peter, it's me. Want a hand? I was like, oh, okay. That's actually good. I like this. <laughs> and then I, I actually, I, I agree completely. I really thought that was going to be, uh, I thought that was another thing that I was worried about. Are they just sticking these villains in? But then, yeah, he comes in and then it's, you know, as we jump forward, it's the sort of the corrupting influence of the other villains that that sends him back but yeah when he comes in it's like right you know because the whole point is they're pulled in essentially right before they die and yeah if you've seen spider-man 3 like he's redeemed at the end that's the whole point of that movie peter forgives him and moves on from his hatred and uh it i i didn't see that coming and i was really pleased that it that it did yeah um, and, you know, we already briefly mentioned Electro, but, uh, but he basically gets a makeover, realizes his powers are slightly different. And he's the one that of the villains that twigs the earliest that he's not in his universe, because in this, they actually remember that he's supposed to be a super smart scientist, something his own films kind of forgot. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, and it was nice that that we actually get more. I mean, he's basically Jamie Foxx is Jamie Foxx, but that's fine because what he was doing in, and I'm not an amazing Spider-Man 2 hater. I think the movie's a mess, but I actually think there's some really terrific stuff in there. I still think it's the best Spider-Man suit out of all the movies. Um, but this one, he's a much, it's weird that he's a much more, I feel like, well-rounded character in this one than he is in uh, his own actual movie uh he feels deeper in yeah. this one 
I think um, they all do in a weird way, uh, with one uh, pretty obvious exception, and that's uh, uh, everybody's friendly neighborhood dinosaur, the lizard. <laughs> um, but everybody else kind of gets a moment to actually show a little bit more to them than they got in their own film, even if it's just retreading some things that the audience might already know. The characters that they're interacting with now don't know that. Speaking of, we then get Green Goblin, uh, sort of, introduction where we see uh willem defoe smash his helmet to pieces which i suspect was therapeutic for willem defoe given all of the problems and issues that they had making that suit and if i hear one more person compare him to the green power ranger i'm going to lose my mind <laughs> because i had to hear that every time somebody mentioned that film 20 odd years ago and literally the day after that film came out a youtube video went up with his scenes, and they put Go Green Ranger in the background to it. And I just thought, really? <laughs> Have we not moved on from this, guys? Yeah, no. And the thing about that, too, is if you know anything about the making of the movie, that was not their top choice. They tried to do a full puppetry iconic yes. mask. They couldn't get it to work. I still think, actually, in a lot of ways, that mask works because the fact that you can that the eye slits can move back and you can see his eyes and you can actually see his mouth. And so you can still see Defoe. Cause I know that was one of the things that Raimi really didn't like about making the movies. Cause a lot of people have complained in the Raimi movies about why does Peter always take his mask off? And Raimi <laughs> was saying, I can't get acting out of these. Like if you're, and look, I love, again, I love Sentai. I love common writer, but like, those dramatic scenes ain't being done with everybody in their full suits, right? Like most of the drama is done. They're out of their suits. And it's the same thing in the Raimi Spider-Man movies. And so they figured out a way with the Green Goblin mask by having the eyes slide back and that you could still see his mouth. The Defoe could still act. And so I actually think it's a pretty ingenious solution to a problem in 2000. You know, they would have been filming it in 2000. Yeah. Uh, we hadn't quite solved yet. You know, now they just do it as CGI and um, you could mocap the actor's face and still get actual facial movements and stuff. But you, you weren't doing that in 2000. Uh, so I actually think that mask is pretty fucking clever, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I never had a problem with the suit. But then I also um, <laughs> it's funny you bring that up because I remember my dad was one of the people that really detested the fact that his mask kept coming off or it got ripped or it got damaged in some way that you could see the face. And um, I remember when the MCU started to basically just give nanotech out to every hero so that their helmets could just blip. And it's like, okay, we're going to have some talking now. And I remember my dad was like, you know, the superheroes in the MCU all you really need is one good sniper and you've taken out the Avengers whenever they're having a conversation. Because <laughs> the speed of which they take their helmets off, it's like there's still stuff going on around them. It's like, have they not seen Starship Troopers? <laughs> yeah, but that's one of those things again where it's like, yeah, but that's that's the price we pay. That's the trade-off we make for watching a movie. Yeah. And do you want to watch a bunch of guys in emotionless, faceless masks talk for a half an hour let me tell you something that's going to be boring as shit like like that's not that's not what movies are about you got to let your actors act you got to give your actors a chance to do what they do and um i mean how many times do we make fun of batman movies 
for big dramatic scenes. And that's even a, not a full face mask where, you know, like Christian Bale's trying to be dramatic in the Batman mask and people make fun of it because it just looks goofy. But <laughs> you, you can't have it both ways, right? Like if you want it to be real, I mean, Batman Returns, the big dramatic scene of that, the final scene with Batman and Selina, he rips the mask off because even Tim Burton, who likes weird, goofy shit, knew that scene needed two actors looking face to face without any shit getting in the way. And that's just movie making. Like, yeah. that's just what movies are. I, I, I really and I'm not making fun of your dad, obviously, but, you know, it's a good point. It's a good jumping off point to talk about, like. If you get bogged down in that stuff. I always have to ask, do you actually like movies? Because that's not what happens here. That's not what happens in movies. Movies are not the real world. Um, and so you have to be okay with things that wouldn't happen in the real world happening in movies. If we've got beautiful actors, beautiful, talented actors, we don't want to see them covered up for the entire movie. That's just yeah. not what movies are about. No, I agree. Um, did have to chuckle there at the uh, movies are not real though. Cause I, in my brain, I went, Oh, I can tell you haven't interacted with the power Ranger community much, but anyway, that power side. <laughs> no, I that agree. Is one, no, I'm just going to say the Tokusatsu community is one community that I have stayed out of because I know how I feel about common rider in particular and i am not interested in engaging except for you because yeah. you and i are on the same page i am not interested in engaging with that community at all i will keep that that's my little special thing and i do not need to know the drama that is involved in <laughs> good call but uh no and for those of you who have no clue what we're talking about google common rider thank us later but <laughs> The one thing I will say that I, and again, I'm jumping slightly ahead here, but I do wish that um, American films or American superhero films specifically would learn a little bit from Tokusatsu from is how to body language the actors in the suits. Because yes, there is the extreme, which is the 1995 Power Rangers movie where you can't say a single sentence without their arms doing triple backflips to emphasize what they're saying with amazing poses with every word. But the Sentai gets it right by actually giving you the body language and exaggerated movements to a normal person, but not when you have an emotionless mask. Yes, by all means, take the mask off, you know, like you say, so that you can do the actual acting. But I do find it funny sometimes. And I noticed it in the final act, which we will get to, when there are three heroes and it's really difficult sometimes to tell which one's which, but I wouldn't struggle to tell which one's which when I watch their films, because each one's actors in the suit has a different way of moving, has a different way of posing as Spider-Man. But when they're all just CGI'd or when they're all just three stuntmen trying to do a front flip, it doesn't always translate as well. You lose that identity of the person behind the mask. That is 100% one criticism that I do have of the movie is in the climax because it's not a typical, terrible Marvel climax. I think it's a lot better than most of them, 
but we do pull back the camera so far that the suits, which are very, very uniquely identifiable in close up. But when we pull them back, they're all just Spider-Man suits and it does get, it, it was a little tricky. I felt like to differentiate which Spidey was, which, and it also required, I feel like a lot more ADR dialogue uh, because they had to be talking constantly so that we could tell that yeah. this one, Toby, this one's Andrew, this one's Tom. Um, it, it was sort of a bit of an inherent problem. I, I, and I do agree with you that, that it didn't, there's about 10 minutes in that climax where they just kind of blend into a Spider-Man sludge uh, yeah. that they're not very identified. You know, you end up identifying them more by the villains that they're fighting because it's like, oh, well, he's fighting Electro. So I'm assuming that's Andrew and, you know, he's fighting Doc Ock. So I'm assuming that's Toby. But it, it does become a bit of a sludge there for about 10, 15 minutes. I agree with you completely. Yeah, some of that I, I don't think is helped by the lighting and the color palette. Um, it gets very dark and the light, you know, the colors don't really pop. Like you should be able to tell Andrew's bright blue suit from Maguire's red and black line suit really easily. But because of the lighting or lack thereof, when they stand next to each other, you can easily be like, hang on, which one's which? Oh, too late. It's gone. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and the other thing is, is, and this is, you pointed out, they become CGI for a lot of it. I mean, these are three actors who physically do not look anything alike, right? Yeah. Tom Holland is very wee and very like almost pixie like. Uh, Toby Maguire's kind of, I don't mean this in a criticism, but he's sort of medium build, but kind of chonky. Like he's, he's even, even back because it was very obvious that Toby didn't put a lot of time in the gym in this one. I mean, the suit work is definitely not him for a good portion. <laughs> I don't blame him. I mean, the dude's my age. Like I, I wouldn't be putting that much work into it either, but you know, he's, he's got a much broader build. And then you've got Andrew Garfield, who's very tall and lanky. So physically they don't look alike. They shouldn't be that hard to tell apart, but when they're replacing them with CGI versions, uh, they all kind of mush together. It's yeah. like they've been run through like an audacity compressor and they all kind of just look the same uh, because when they're all standing together, it's like, oh yeah, no, they're nothing alike. Like they're physically very different actors. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so it, it, it becomes, and you're right, you know, the, the decision again to once again have the climax at night uh, and, and, and for a movie that for the most part, everything else is done in fairly broad daylight to go to that sort of mushy darkness at the end was a little, a, a little bit disappointing. I mean, it, it, I still think it's better than a lot of the Marvel climaxes, but it still suffers from a lot of the same problems as a lot of the Marvel climaxes. Yeah. I think, I think the reason why it doesn't bother me as much in this one, and then we're going to rewind back to what I'm about to reference is the fact that although the Spider-Man become a bit of a indistinguishable sludge the villains don't and most of the villains you see their faces at all times even if their face is cgi lizard and sandman but it allows you to still care about what's happening it doesn't just become a giant dragon versus a giant tentacle monster 
or two flying CGI people attacking each other. <laughs> yeah, and you've also got, you know, also balancing that out, you've got uh, Ned and MJ, and you've got Doctor Strange. So you've got a bunch of people in this scene who all have their faces visible, which gives us anchor points. So, because that is the one thing, as much as the Spider-Men blend together, the geography of the scene, I think, remains shockingly clear for a Marvel movie. I never really felt like I was losing my geography, like I was losing my yeah. plate where I was throughout all this climax. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But uh, anyway, we've, we've skipped right over the best bit of this film, let's be honest, and that's Willem Dafoe's performance as Norman Osborn stroke Green Goblin. And I was completely and utterly blown away by how they chose to introduce him. Obviously, you had the scene that everybody saw in the trailer where he slowly glides in and he laughs and you think, haha, evil shenanigans are afoot. But then when you next see him, he breaks the mask. He's having a bit of a tantrum with himself, just like he did in Spider-Man 1, where he was having a good old go at himself in the mirror. But this time, instead of giving in to him, he decides to go and seek help, uh, specifically Spider-Man's help, and ends up at Maze. And the scene that follows when Peter shows up and he just starts talking about the fact that somebody else is living in his house and his company doesn't exist, and then he starts wondering where Harry is and he doesn't even finish the sentence, I was just like, what are, what what what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Defoe they they hooked him up on the script and then Defoe just brought it, which I mean he always does, but I did not I really didn't see that coming. And and I I actually really thought uh a lot of that um and in a lot of ways, it kind of reminded me of the the Sony Spider-Man game. I don't know why. Maybe because he meets May at the shelter, you know, where she helps out and yeah, stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Um, it, it felt so much uh, akin to that, too, of just, um, yeah, this idea of, and Raimi hints at it, but he doesn't quite, he doesn't get the chance to quite flesh it out as much, that the the goblin formula has made norman this jekyll and hyde not just this purely evil person um and uh i really thought they balanced that out that that nicely uh as far as as far as how all that goes um and it leads forward into you know the big turning point of the movie obviously which i don't want to jump ahead you know i'll let you jump us to that but it it does a really terrific job of balancing out this whole and this struggle for Peter. Do I save these people or do I have to destroy these people? Because my inclination yeah. is to save them, but are they beyond saving? Are they beyond redemption? Um, which is a lot heavier than I thought John Watts was capable of uh, because I saw nothing in homecoming or far from home that gave me any, any indication. Uh, really, that he was going to be able to tackle something like that and tackle it as well as he does here. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I liked Homecoming uh, from the sounds of it more than you did, but Far From Home, I never rewatched it. We saw it in the cinema when it came out, 
And I've never sat here and thought, oh, I, I must rewatch that. That was a good fun time, you know? Um, whereas I've already gone and rewatched No Way Home. And it wasn't just because Tom and Andrew show up. It was genuinely, in my opinion, one of Tom Holland's strongest performances. There isn't a bad actor in the group. And the story of the difference between being the guy that helps someone on the street and being a superhero, whether or not you can find redemption, whether or not it's worth trying. And more importantly, if you're going to do all of that, the sacrifice that will it will happen at some point that you will have to make in order to do it. Because I think that's something that a lot of MCU heroes don't have these days. And it's not even just MCU heroes. It's something I've noticed in pop culture in general is there's a shift from most people that used to be heroes had to overcome a great personal struggle or a challenge. And nine times out of 10, they had to sacrifice something to get there. It's a cliche that we hear a lot, especially in Disney films, for example, where, oh, it's a Disney character. So which one of their parents died? Were they orphans? Did, were they, you know, you, you know what you're getting for going in. And I feel like a lot of superheroes and heroes that are created today overcompensate and try to make them not have to do any of that. They can be just walking, quirky, sarcasm machines that don't have problems. And if they do have them, well, they're super smart, so they'll get over it. And some people will go, well, yeah, but you just described Iron Man. No, I didn't, because Iron Man starts with his parents dying, and then his best friend that raised him betrays him in the very first film, and is the person that tries to kill him. So there's the thing he has to overcome. And I think a lot of people miss that with Iron Man when they try and make Iron Man copies is they just see the wit and the persona that he puts on, whereas inside he doesn't know how to deal with it. So comedy and humor is the answer. And that's kind of what Spider-Man's always been about in the comics, but it's never really, as you said earlier, been in the films. And But then in that moment, when Peter says they might be struggling they they're all broken they're all damaged but it's not my problem the best thing for them is to send them home and may says for them or for you and the second she said that my brain went this is comic book spider-man <laughs> it's it's coming through at last <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely and <clears throat> you know the whole thing for me with peters the idea is that part of the reason that he actually likes being spider-man is is peter parker carries the weight of the world on his shoulders and spider-man free and this really grasped that because this is about decisions that peter parker has to make not decisions that spider you know spider-man makes the decision to jump on the ship to go to Titan to fight Thanos. That's a decision that Spider-Man makes. Everything in this movie is a decision that Peter Parker has to make. And that is an important distinction uh, because that's what makes him such an enduring character. You know, I, I've said this before about, and again, I, I don't know, I, I, maybe I'm just an old school comic fan, but you know, that's the same thing about Superman. To me, it's not, People are always like Superman's boring. I'm like, he's not because the person that's not boring is Clark Kent, right? The, 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 the decisions that Superman has to make that are interesting are the decisions that Clark Kent makes. Superman can just punch shit, 
But Superman or but Clark Kent has to decide what are the consequences of that? What are the ramifications of that? And that's the same thing for Spider-Man. Um, and you're right. It's the same thing for Tony Stark in the first couple of Iron Man movies. And then I think they do lose their way a little bit with that. But yeah, some of the replications of that, I'm with you. They don't understand this idea of. Being a hero has consequences. And this is goes back to why Spider-Man 2 is my favorite movie, because we get that great Aunt May speech. Yep. Uh, you know, we need a hero. It, the person that teaches us to hold on, even if it means we give up our dreams, you know, and that that to me is such a culmination and fucking Alvin Sargent for writing that. That is such a culmination of what all these movies are supposed to be about. And I have just not felt that for so many MCU movies until I got until we got to this one. And I was like, all right, now now we're in my wheelhouse. Now we're doing my shit in this movie. Yeah. And I think the fact that they went there and again, it some of it is forecasted very well or foreshadowed, not forecasted. It's not the weather, Um, but it's it's even easier to spot it the second time around because they set Norman Osborn up to be this sympathetic ally and they also kind of do the same thing with the rest of them but they really hammer it in with Norman that he can help and he wants to help and he doesn't want to be a villain and of course with what's gonna happen afterwards you then understand why they did that um but I really love the fact that actually no I can't skip over this bit because I need to talk about this bit but before we get to that bit what did you think of the fight between peter and strange it was okay um i thought it made decent use of the um mirror you know i thought it made good use of the the mirror verse um which i didn't think infinity war did very well uh you know scott derrickson did some really creative stuff with how that worked in the original doctor strange I liked it better in the movie than I thought it would because I thought, again, this was going to be Peter being an idiot, and I do kind of get it. I'm, I've never been a super huge fan of my heroes fighting each other. I know that's such a comic book trope, and it's a thing that always happens, but I've never been a huge fan of it. But I thought it was it was fine, and it didn't go on too long, uh, so it didn't, it didn't bother me. It's not my favorite part of the movie, though. I, I'll oh, fully no. admit it's definitely not my favorite part of the movie. I, I think if someone out there is saying that that was my favorite part of the movie, I think they fell asleep during the rest of the movie, um, which uh, probably wasn't the movie for them. <laughs> but no, the one part I did like um, that I, I feel like was important because it's it leads into something in a moment is when Strange knocks peter out of his body and tries to take the box from him and he can still dodge strange and you finally see his spider sense in the shimmers that's happening and you think yeah that's the spider sense it still works even if Peter's not there um and every film the spider sense has kind of been introduced more and more and more important and in this film the spider sense is kind of what saves the day on multiple occasions yes they did the same thing in far from home but it's like this Peter doesn't really understand it. I mean, not helped by the fact that they won't even call it the spider sense. It's the Peter Tingle, um, which I still don't like. But I am happy that, that MCU cutting that just another example of that MCU undercutting shit, right? Yeah. 
but they they set that up because obviously after Peter makes his stand and decides that he can't send them back without trying to help and then he deals with Strange and then you get the the last storyline I would have imagined when you told me what this film was about before me seeing it all of the villains just go to his house to chill and try and see whether or not they can not be villains and it's probably one of my favorite scenes in the entire film is just everybody chilling at Peter Parker's house like okay um I guess we'll watch TV then <laughs> yeah yeah I agree and that feels right out of a comic book right you know I mean that it's so ridiculous and it's so over the top and I mean that in a good way it feels right out of a comic book that they're all and I loved again that we're getting science Peter you know I love for all three of the Peters how much this movie focuses on Peter being a scientist and Peter being yeah. and because that is one of the things that I think uniformly almost all the movies don't really hit on strong enough. Um, I do love an amazing Spider-Man too. We get that montage of, of Andrew figuring out how to insulate his web shooters so that Electro can't, you know, can't fry them, but we don't get a ton of that in the movies. And I really love that scene. I do also love, I'm with you. I love when he knocks strange knocks him out of his body and it does really establish that in this world of gods and monsters and super soldiers that Peter Parker and wizards that Peter Parker's still special, that he is unique amongst all of these people because I love that Strange is like, how are you doing that? You shouldn't be able to do that. And I was like, well, yeah, because he's Peter Parker, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And and again, that was one of the things that I felt was sort of missing from the MCU movies with him is he's just this sort of annoying little sidekick for a lot of them. Um, And this is the one where it's like, like the entire MCU's found that were like Marvel's foundation is obviously built on the Fantastic Four first. And then Spider-Man second. So like, even though he's not the strongest, he's not the toughest, he's not, he's still special. He is the anchor around which the rest of this universe revolves. And this is the first time I'm really feeling like we're getting that. Yeah, um, I I 100% agree. And it's funny you say that because actually, I think the best version of him that we got was his introduction in Civil War. Um, Not now. But for a long time, I was annoyed that he was set up so well in that film because he comes in, he matches Captain America, which in terms of strength, he could flatten Cap if he wanted to because of the spider strength, which again gets underplayed. However, when he goes off and fights Falcon and Winter Soldier, they make a point of showing A, his spider sense when he constantly just dodges and isn't even phased by them but my favorite bit in that entire fight is when he blocks bucky's arm which obviously previously nothing's been able to stop him even cap shield had to stop and spider-man just catches it and he's like whoa this is so cool like he doesn't even register how impossible it is to stop the winter soldier when he's attacking and he's just like yeah whatever um but then they kind of rewound back when it came to his films and didn't want to go down that route of having him be so op but then they kind of built back up to that in this film of He's always pulling his punches, um, which I, I'm happy that they established that because, like you said, sometimes it feels like people don't realize that that he is always holding back because if he actually went over the you know full out, most humans wouldn't wouldn't survive very well, shall we say? 
Well, yeah, it's the great, you know, applied to Spider-Man, but it's the great Justice League world of Superman world of cardboard speech, right? You know, yes, uh, uh, it's on DVD over there. <laughs> um, and no, and that's the thing. And I do love we get that line from Andrew later where he says, I got I got bitter. And at some point I stopped pulling my punches, which I loved. I thought that was a nice little touch. So uh, to go now, I guess, to the thing we're avoiding <laughs> is the moment where Norman turns, the spider sense goes loopy and manages to stop whatever it was Norman was going to do. Not that it really helped because he still managed to uh, basically get inside Electro's head, which then Electro went off and then Sandman went off. Literally, he just went off. <laughs> um, but then we get possibly my favorite fight in any MCU film ever, which is Willem Dafoe just beating the crap out of Tom Holland. Um, and yes, uh, when I rewatched it, I did admittedly see that there were quite a few good hits from Spider-Man. I love the way he used the webbing like Spider-Man actually does in the books and in various video games. Um, but Willem Dafoe's brutality and then obviously Lizard coming in to help as well. It, it, uh, it's just so good, man. That's just one of the best fights I think they've ever done. Yeah, it you know, I almost wish it was a little longer uh, because I, I thought it was really terrific. The, the fight choreography in there is is frankly top notch, um, you know, much more. One of the complaints that I and a lot of people have about MCU fight scenes is you can see that there's actually really terrific choreography going on there. And it ends up getting buried under a crap ton of dodgy CGI. And um, this one really felt very practical um and i'm i'm bear with me for one second i meant to look this up beforehand but i wanted to see who the stunt and fight coordinators were on this one um because it's usually gonna be somebody pretty big um yeah i must anyway. admit i was gonna look for that as well and then uh due to time constraints did not get a chance but i wondered who it, who did it as well so it's it's actually it's uh Jackson Spadell who's another 8711 guy. Um uh, so and uh I I just I thought it was really good and you could see the actors did the work. Uh there's a lot less CGI. I mean sure there's a lot of CGI in it but there's less than usual. Um, it, there, there's CGI in it for the big over the top stuff but when they're actually in the corridor when they're both facing each other that you can tell that this is one of the least CGI heavy sequences in this film, but also just in general. They are just punching each other and it's glorious. Yeah, and it, there's a real impact to the punches. There's a, it doesn't feel like um, paper dolls punching each other, right? There's a yeah. real impact, uh, especially as they're you know going through the floors and all of that yeah. stuff. I was just going to say, I'm they, they must be real sets that they actually destroyed because I've never seen them pull off CGI that good if it is. <laughs> and again, you know, credit where it's due. I did not think because I, I have long made the argument that I think John Watts, everybody listening is going to be like, you need to watch Cop Car. I've watched Cop Car. Cop Car is great. That's not my put Cop Car out of your fucking mind. Uh, <laughs> John Watts that directed 
Homecoming and Far From Home, I think is virtually indistinguishable from an algorithm. Everything in those movies is flat. It's lifeless. It's designed to appeal to the lowest level of masses. There's no identity. There's no anything. Didn't see that coming. That fight did not see that coming. That fight was, it had identity. It had directorial purpose. It had, um, a real eye for how this wanted to be done. Uh, it's shot with some, some tremendous cinematography, dramatic lighting and stuff like that. I just didn't, that was the first scene where I really sat up. I mean, I was enjoying the movie, but that was the first scene where I really sat up and was like, Oh, everybody decided to bring their a game. Yep. We're in for a ride for the rest of this movie. And especially contrasted to the Doctor Strange fight scene that fills just like such an MCU fight scene. Yeah. It was a really nice contrast to be like, okay, maybe we're going to get some different stuff here. See, I think that's what Tom Holland was trying to allude to when he said that they were trying to film it differently. Like, not necessarily film it just like the Raimi films but they definitely wanted to make it its own style and not make you think oh yeah this we've seen this a hundred times before I also think um some of that is because it's Willem Dafoe yes I'm sure he was doubled and yes I'm sure there are moments where it's not him but he himself has clarified that he did 90% of the action himself and that was one of his stipulations in his contract for going back to the role yeah, refused to come back if they didn't let him do most of his own stunts. So yeah, yeah, which at 66, and given that it's not like he's a Tom Cruise or a Jackie Chan, it isn't like he's got a hundred action films behind him. I wish he did because he's so good at it. <laughs> yeah, I really, I really need, I need, I need my Willem Dafoe like old man Liam Neeson action movie now. Like I really need my Willem Dafoe. Give me back my daughter movie. Absolutely. There was, uh, and if you heard this, feel free to stop me, but I, I was listening to an interview with Tom Holland and he was talking about rehearsing that fight with Willem Dafoe. And he, he said, obviously, you know, we'd never worked together, um, in, in, in a physical capacity. And he said he is getting on. And so I was basically going slow and pulling my punches because I didn't want to run the risk of injuring him. And then there's a bit in the choreography where he has to punch me in the ribs and he sent me across the room. (laughs) And after that, I decided I wasn't going to hold back anymore. And he said, I am, you know, 25 or whatever Tom Holland is. And he just ran rings around me. And I just think, how, what are you drinking? How do I get it? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. They, made it far more visceral and brutal than any of the other MCU fights that I think we've ever had. And partly that's because they didn't use CGI. It was real people. But also, they teased Daredevil in the same film at the exact same time that Hawkeye teased Kingpin and was in it, in in its completeness. And I can't help but wonder, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, is do you think this is maybe signaling the beginning of the MCU going down a darker route and taking a more mature tone because they've kind of hinted that we're going to see more daredevil and there's a moon Knight show on the way. And they've already said that the moon Knight show is for older audiences as well as everyone. So I don't know how they're going to balance that, but what do you think? I think maybe for the Disney plus shows, um, I, I think 
definitely for the Disney Plus shows. I mean, even even, you know, Hawkeye had a certain level of of visceral action that you don't you don't typically see in the, uh, you know, in the, the main flagship MCU movies. I would be really surprised if the movies themselves go, you know, sort of grittier or, or darker in, in that regard, because um, and the reason I say that is because it if there was two movies that should have been and, and gone grittier and darker, it was Black Widow and Shang-Chi. And they they weren't that at all. Um, they, they were just MCU movies, especially Shang-Chi was just like a bog standard MCU movie, in my opinion. I know a lot of people really love that movie. But um, but uh, <clears throat> so I, I would be really surprised. I think we're going to have a little bit better of an idea of what the future of the MCU is going to kind of look like here in a year because they bumped it back. I think what a full year, right? Doctors when, whenever Dr. Strange comes out, um, I think we'll have a better idea of, of what the future of the MCU is going to kind of look like. Cause I, I know that they've already sort of teased that that's kind of the movie around which phase four is sort of going to, you know, it, it, it opens with no way home, but then multiverse of madness is really kind of the, so, you know, if, if we get a doctor strange movie that looks like a Sam Raimi movie, then I think all bets are off. If we get a Sam Raimi, if we get a movie where Sam Raimi is constrained by the MCU and he ends up looking, you know, like Destin Daniel Cretton or, or any of the other kind of, directors they've had then i i'm not sure uh but i think the disney plus shows have a little more freedom a little more latitude and so i i i think they'll probably go a little harder on some of that stuff i mean moon Knight, it, moon Knight will be a good test as well because you can't do moon Knight without i mean moon Knight's an incredibly dark character just by the the, the entire concept of the character yeah. is incredibly dark um and so if they're going to try and do Moon Knight, then they're going to have to go some places they don't typically go. Um, and we'll see if they do it or not, you know, because I agree with you. I thought that the actual physical fisticuffs in No Way Home were terrific and felt like real fights, um, which was great to see, I thought. Yeah, no, no, I agree. Um, uh, yeah, it was just uh, hopefully we will see is all I'm going to say for that. But uh that unfortunately, or fortunately, because from a film point of view, it's really good. From an emotional point of view, it what it just destroyed me. Um, we then get the moment where Green Goblin really leaves his mark on the film, and he manages to kill May. Yeah, so this is the thing in the spoilers where I was reading them, and I was just honestly like, "Fuck this movie! Fuck it right in the air." Oh, um, okay. See, I didn't read this one, so this was a complete shock yeah. to me. No, this is why I had my because here's the thing. I love Marissa Tomei. I think she'd been done dirty by these movies because she was basically there to just be hot Aunt May and be ogled at by Tony Stark and then Happy Hogan. Um, and I really thought that they had done her dirty. And so when I saw they were going to kill her off, I was just like, fuck this movie. Now, that being said, she actually has an arc and a story and a role in this movie. So it I still don't. I don't love the narrative choice. This is exactly the scene I was talking about where I don't love the narrative choice, but I love the execution. I think this is executed 
masterfully. I think the buildup is great. I think the result is great. I think the idea that she's sitting there talking to Peter for a while before it becomes clear that she's bleeding out um, was really just heart wrenching. And actually for me, it was even worse because I knew she was going to die. And, you know, people, right now are just blowing their minds that i read the spoilers on this get over it i like spoilers it's an anxiety thing but um it knowing that that was coming made it even almost more heart-wrenching for me because i'm like oh she's gonna she's dying we're literally watching her die right now yeah and uh and then of course we finally get the phrase that they have steadfastly avoided for like six fucking spider-man movies yeah uh, great power comes great responsibility and so it just it, it's a killer scene I, I i still i don't love that they decided to do it i don't i just it's kind of like i know they changed it up because it's may and not ben but it's also a little bit of like how many times can we see thomas and martha wayne get killed in movies but i feel like this is going to sound a little harsh. I feel like because for me, they've so fucked up the characterization of Spider-Man in the previous MCU movies. We needed this scene because we needed to give him that gravitas and that guilt that he needs to have that drives him. So yeah. I don't love it. But it works and it's tremendously well executed. I have no complaints about how they executed it in the movie. So I've listened, watched, read God knows how many reviews of this film. And you've pretty much echoed every single one that I've seen and almost everybody doesn't like it, but I haven't yet found a single person that says it doesn't fit the film and that it wasn't necessary. And I, I agree. I, I cannot make up my mind whether this was a reaction to the criticisms of the previous Spider-Man or if this was always the plan and that by by the end of this film, the entire home trilogy is basically Spider-Man's origin story in the MCU. And if that was the plan from day one, I'm buying whoever thought of that a drink because I kept waiting for when they were going to reference Uncle Ben or when they were going to do it. I mean, they kind of hint at it in Civil War when Tony's in the apartment and asks him why he does this and then he doesn't really answer. But now Ben is just not a thing, and they've decided that May raised him on her own in this version. So of course it makes total sense that she's his uncle Ben. And who says that he she has to die at the start of the story? You know, it's I liked it, even though it was heartbreaking, although not as heartbreaking as the scene that would come later. But I was just so not prepared for it because it's an MCU film. People don't die. Not not you know not someone that's established. Not unless you know you know it's going to happen. So when she did die, I was in disbelief. But the second she said, you know, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. My brain went, she did. <laughs> People that say that line do not stay alive. <laughs> no, no. Um, yeah, no. And I, and I think I, I don't want to jump ahead, but the other thing that I think makes it is how quickly they spin it. Because we go from that at like just a worst possible moment to five minutes later, um, Andrew Garfield shows up. And yes. so you it's it's a brilliant like low to high to get you back up out of that out of that spot. And the pacing of that is just, I think, incredibly well constructed and incredibly well done. 
Yes. I really like the fact that they let you sit with the moment of she died and then the police come in. I was really expecting Peter to uh, beat the crap out of the police, if I'm being entirely honest, because it really looked like he was going to. And then he just kind of disappeared. Um, how he did that, I don't know, but well done. <laughs> and then, as you say, we got the Andrew Garfield sequence, which was hysterical. The f- fact that MJ kept throwing bread at him was just, I keep, well, I'll never not laugh at that. Um, but, uh, the arrival of Toby then quickly followed. And again, his entrance just had me in stitches the way he was like, oh, I just, I just came to this. Oh, it, it's closed. <laughs> yeah. I just, I love, I love like, your dad, Toby Maguire, coming through the portal, right? Like, and that's so perfect because I love the characterizations of both of them because you get you get what made them their Spider-Man. Like Andrew comes in and he's all spastic and high energy and sarcastic and doing all this stuff. And then you get Toby coming in who's just like a warm blanket when he walks through that portal, you know, and, and he's just, and he's not in his Spider-Man suit. He's in dad clothes. He's wearing fucking khakis or something, you know, coming through and you just get that, that immediate contrast of who they are, but also why they're both so great at playing this same character, ostensibly this same character, but they're doing such different versions and those versions work. Obviously Toby's movies are better than Andrew's, but Andrew Garfield was never the problem with those movies. Um, and that really becomes clear, I think, in this movie. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, I am very aware of the time, so I am going to skip forward ever so slightly because as much as uh, their introductions was great and I love their little exchange of webbing, um, the real magic moment for me and i've seen it twice and both times i've not been able to get through the entire scene without having some tears is when the three of them meet up when tom holland's peter is at his lowest and they start exchanging their trauma and i love the way because you could see it coming a mile away but i love the way our peter was like don't tell me you know what I'm going through. And we know it's like, uh, yeah, kid, they have literally been what you're going through times X amount of number, you know? And like you said, Tobey Maguire was there to be the older Spider-Man. He has been there, done that, and his stuff is long in the past, but it's still there for him. He's the guiding light, and Andrew is still raw. He's He's been there, done that times two, but he hasn't got over it. And I, and that contrast was just so well done. And I, it, it's like I said earlier, some people are really good at taking what didn't work or what was a mess and finding a way to turn that into a strength. And that's exactly what they did with The Amazing Spider-Man 2. That film is such a mess, but somehow that now has become a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. You know, going back to when we started, it it is a very comic book thing to take something that maybe didn't work and and make something out of it. Because I also love that we finally get acknowledgement that Toby actually killed the guy that killed Uncle Ben, or at least thought he did, you know, because he more or less, yeah, it was self-defense, but he certainly didn't stop that dude from falling out the window. And, uh, and the way he's like, it didn't make it any better. And, uh, Uh, That for me, that scene for me is the high point of the movie. That's everything else after that is kind of just Marvel stuff. There's still some good stuff, but that scene is the emotional 
climax of the movie for me. Um, it was so well done. It was so terrific. Uh, it was when I was like, I, I go from liking the movie to just flat out loving it. Uh, and carrying that goodwill. I mean, I'm still carrying that goodwill talking about this movie, how much I love that scene. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, I know a lot of people have said that Andrew Garfield stole the show. And I did think that, and I do still think that to a degree. I mean, Willem Dafoe for me is the best character in the film. Andrew Garfield getting his redemption is really good. However, in that sequence where they're all sharing the moment that breaks broke me both times is when Tom Holland's Peter says with great power and then Toby Maguire finishes it because that's when even though it was years ago for him you can tell he's reliving it that you know he goes full acting um the tears come out with great responsibility and it's what Uncle Ben said and every Spider-Man fan regardless of whether you saw it in the cinemas whether you were there whether you came from the comics it's like that's the Spider-Man thing yes like you said how many times are we going to see them kill Martha and uh, sorry, kill the Waynes? But I think everybody has that anchor point of we know Ben dies. It's Spider-Man's fault. He has to live with it. And I love the fact that Andrew Garfield then says that's what Ben said when he died. And you have that moment of realization from the other two of hang on, you were talking about Gwen. You also lost Ben the same way I did. And it's like, yeah. They've all been through shit. You're not alone in having a crappy life. It's kind of your thing. I hate to say it. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It is kind of your thing. And I love that the movie is not about reveling in trauma, but in finding shared support in trauma and then hopefully healing that trauma through that shared support. Um, it's it's pretty spectacular and that no pun intended it's pretty spectacular um the with the way they pull that off and again yeah i mean look i love andrew in it but i don't think toby's getting enough credit especially for somebody that hasn't acted in 10 years or however long it's been and is more or less retired um i don't think toby's getting enough credit for what he's bringing to the table here yeah he's doing it what he could do in his sleep but he's still doing it he's still bringing that warmth and that humanity because that was always what made his spider-man so good was his inherent humanity i mean he's like almost painfully human in those Raimi movies and um he brings that to the table here too only now he's the older wiser one who can uh who can sort of be the mentor like i love the scene just flashing back really quick when he first appears and he says uh i feel like i'm supposed to be here because i think your peter needs my help and i was just like oh my god you're killing me here with that. yep yep i love that um i really like toby Maguire's characterization i also like so i said this to jade who's my partner the other uh yesterday I think I said the same thing to my dad, actually, because he's also seen the film. But when he comes in, he's old man Peter. As the film goes on, Andrew finds people he can relate to and starts to be more like the Peter Parker that everybody remembers. Tom gets guidance from two people who've already been there. But I think that Toby also 
has a slight change in that in the beginning, he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm Spider-Man. I've been there. I've done that. It's nothing new. And you can almost kind of feel like for him, it's like, I do this every day. But he's seeing what he used to be like as a teenager, pretending that Toby was a teenager in Spider-Man. Um, and by the time they get to the big finale and they all start trying to work together, he starts flipping and doing backflips and he starts enjoying being Spider-Man. And I don't think people are giving him enough credit for the fact that by the end of the film, he's remembered why he likes being Spider-Man. He used to be like these guys and he's smiling when he's helping people. And it's like, yeah, this is what it means to be Spider-Man. I am Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah, you, you really start to see that when they're working on finishing all the devices to help the villains. Right. And it's just they're all working together and 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 he does. He almost becomes younger as the movie goes on. Yeah. Um, yeah which I think is great. Um, and I do love. I love the sort of because you sort of have Tom over here because he's got this emotional arc with Green Goblin. And so it leaves Toby and Andrew to kind of do this like buddy cop, almost like Shane Black-esque comedy where they're bantering back and forth and they're fighting over who's Spider-Man 2 and who's Spider-Man 3. And, uh, you know, and like the end when toby gets stabbed and and he's like are you okay and you know he's like yeah i'm fine and, and then you know they give tom the big heroic send off and then he andrew just looks and goes you're in a lot of pain right now aren't you yeah yeah i love <laughs> yeah. that bit it, it really uh, um sorry it really uh, annoys me because as a result of how popular they've been now sony is like oh we could make an amazing spider-man 3 oh spider-man 4 could also be on the table it's like i would love that but what I would really love more is for you to figure out a way for me to just get the two of them together for a film and just give me them together. Because the way they played off of each other, you could tell they just were having a good time being in the same room with each other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's, uh, you know, there's that old Roger Ebert rule is a movie better. Would you rather have dinner with the stars of the movie or watch the movie because the movie should be better than just having dinner with the stars of the movie. And this is the one of the times where I can truly say, no, I'd rather watch the movie because they they were so delightful together, bantering back and forth and, and, and playing to their strengths again, you know, the, the sort of more quiet reserve Toby uh, and the more uh, hyperactive Andrew, but playing to their strengths in that way that, that I thought was just really really terrific yeah no I, I agree the only other thing that i think we should touch on and then i think we'll we'll wind it down is did uh not did you see it coming per se but do you think uh did you have an emotional response to andrew catching mj i mean i saw it coming because i saw it coming from even the trailers because <laughs> It was already relatively certain. I mean, I called this a month ago. You know, I, I told my wife when you see in the trailer that MJ's fallen, I said, Garfield's going to catch her. Uh, but I mean, you know, again, knowing that is not a bad thing because no, I thought it was, I thought it was terrific. Um, I certainly had an emotional response to it. I thought it was necessary. I think if they hadn't done that, that would have been really doing a disservice to the the movie that they were trying to create. Um, because that was what needed to be done for the movie. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I think everybody got what they needed. And 
before we talk about the spell, I think that the dialogue we had between the three Spider-Men was just perfect. Them talking about their previous films, them talking about their villains. And my favorite moment, even though it's really not in the grand scheme of things, is when they work out that they're really not good as working as a team together. And I absolutely love the way that our Peter tries to brag that he does know how to work in a team because he's an Avenger. And they're both so supportive that they're like, that's amazing. Oh, that's so cool. And then pause, followed by, what's an Avenger? <laughs> and then he spends like five minutes trying to explain it for Toby to then just look at him. And it's the most angry you see him in the whole film. And he's like, how is this helping? <laughs> And I thought that was such a good moment for them to sort of be like, yeah, they can all be a bit hyperactive and it does require one of them to be like, no, 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 you're getting totally off track. Stop. Tell us why this matters. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But uh, yeah, I mean, after that whole fight, we're going to kind of gloss over the Spider-Man and, and, and fight with uh, Green Goblin because let's face it, there isn't really much to add there. We already know. What happens? I love the fact that they showed Spider-Man having his uh, powers on full display, the punching of the shield and the shield just almost breaking from his sheer strength. But I love the fact that they had Toby stop him from killing Norman. And I've seen so many different takes on that. And for me, I don't think that had anything to do with what happened in his films because Toby didn't kill him. He killed himself. And it was all about stopping our Peter, Tom Holland, from making a mistake. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, this is because he was so upset about killing him. It's like he didn't kill him. He said Toby didn't kill any of his villains apart from Venom. Uh, they all either killed themselves or found redemption. He did. He, you know, it's like rewatch those films, guys. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I agree with you completely on that. I don't get any sense from any of those movies that he has any guilt the guilt he has over what happened to norman is because he can't tell harry about it it's not because of what actually happened to norman but yeah no i i, I agree with you um i think it was it was it was the right way to end the movie and uh yeah and then we get the the spell which i don't know that we need to spend too much time on because like we said it's basically just one more day right peter has to make a choice uh, yeah that's what i was gonna and, say uh it's a the moving scene, but it's basically just one more day. He wipes out Peter Parker from existence, basically. Yeah. No, the only reason I wanted to um, mention it is because aside from the fact they tease other villains, I think that that's such a clever way to reset Spider-Man in the MCU because now he can basically just be the Spider-Man from the comics, but still in the MCU, but without all of the baggage that that comes with because nobody knows who he is anymore. And... For me, the the sign that he has grown as a character comes at the end when he doesn't tell MJ and Ned. I mean, God knows how he was planning to do that anyway, but the fact that he doesn't even try and he's like, actually, no, they're safer without knowing who I am. He moves into that rundown apartment and we get the homemade suit that literally looks like they just tore it off the page of The Amazing Spider-Man. The only thing that would have made that rundown apartment better is if the landlord had gone, rent, rent. <laughs> <laughs> but 
No, and, and I love the way they shoot it too, where it pans in and you see the shitty apartment, then you see the sewing machine and you see the remnants of the suit. And then it cuts to him again, doing what Spider-Man should do because when he puts the mask on, he's free running across these buildings and web swinging and hooting and hollering and uh, just having a great time doing what he's doing because it's Peter Parker that carries the weight of the world. Yeah. Spider-Man's free. Uh, and I thought it, it just absolutely nailed that. The other thing I, I am going to ask you quickly before we wrap up here is uh, what did you think of the post credit scene? I So I thought it was fine. I haven't seen, I know that it's a, a, a pairing with the post credit scene of Let There Be Carnage, but I haven't actually seen Let There Be Carnage yet. Oh, um, okay. I thought, I thought it was funny because I'm always going to enjoy Venom. Like, I, I'll watch Tom Hardy as Venom until I turn blue in the face. But um I, I thought it was fine. And obviously, the, you know, the final post credit scene was just the trailer that has now been released online that everybody can see. Um, so I thought it was fine. I liked that it didn't really seem to be setting up a ton. Obviously, Sony's hinting that we're going to get some sort of Venom Spider-Man matchup sometime down the road. But it's not really setting anything up, which no. was kind of not. The only thing I think it it has set up and I think that that's what they're probably going to do next is I don't think they're setting up Venom, but I think they are setting up a black suit storyline because if ever there was a time where this version of Peter could be tempted, it would be now when he's alone living in a crappy apartment after everything that's happened. And then the black suit would attach to him, essentially make him feel really good and make his life easier. Yes. He has just learned this lesson that there must come sacrifice but who among us can say they wouldn't be tempted to just go with it and not have to struggle again? Well, and he's also still in the MCU, so you can do a little more comic accurate version where you've got people that might actually be able to help him with the suit. Yeah. You know, for those who don't know in the original comics, it was Reed Richards that helped him figure out how to get the suit off initially. Um, and of course, there's the fact that he originally got the suit in Secret Wars, which if the rumor mill is accurate is a storyline that we're going to be getting. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it, I think there's definitely fertile ground to do it. And certainly, you know, Sony wants to milk that venom train as much and as often as they can. So maybe that's even how you do it. I'm just speculating here, but you do a black suit storyline because obviously the venom they've got now is a very different venom than the venom that started in the comic books. Yeah not going to want to make venom the bad guy uh now like that no. would be so maybe you do a black suit storyline and venom eddie brock actually has to come and help peter with the black suit like you know figure out help him to get it off or something like that like there's a lot of ways they can go with it that i think could be really interesting we'll we'll see what they do with it i mean sony's so hit and miss on this stuff that i have absolutely no idea where they're gonna go um we'll just see you know I'm just genuinely curious, and uh, I don't know where to fit this organically in the conversation, so it's, I'm just going to say it now that we've come to the end. Uh, when did you first get exposed to the idea of the Spider-Verse as a concept? Because obviously we had the Sony animation film, and now they've done it in live action. When was your first experience with the multiple Spider-Men? 
it would have been it would have been way back uh the um I mean, there's been some in, in the comics in the past, but it would have been the ultimate line uh, when they brought MC, when they brought Miles in. And um, and then after that, they did the you know, they did the Spider-Man uh, crossover where Miles and then six, 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 Peter meet up. And then I think it was Spider Island after that. I can't remember the exact. Yes, yes. Uh, Spider Island and Spider Geddon, I think, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah, and then the big Spider. Uh, and then there was the big spider verse crossover so it would have been right around then um you know kind of kind of for the last um you know 20 years or so yeah see uh i found that really interesting because uh i don't know if you would have heard of it have you ever heard of a video game called spider-man shattered dimensions yeah yeah i i i own and have played shattered dimensions so there's uh there's like oh, i don't know how many there's a lot of essays on from people on YouTube that claim that it um, invented the Spider-Verse and, you know, it predates the Spider-Verse comics by several years and they're not wrong. But um, when I was uh, a wee lad uh, in the 90s, uh, just to annoy everyone listening who's ever so slightly older than that, there was an animated series called Spider-Man, the animated series, and it was created by John Semper Jr., and the very, very last storyline is Secret Wars, which then leads into a bunch of Spider-Men teaming up from different realities to save the world from a Peter Parker that's got the Carnage symbiote. And Kingpin is financing to open up a dimensional portal that is going to destroy all of reality. If that sounds vaguely familiar, <laughs> it's because it is. <laughs> and... um I know that he's uh, he's been campaigning. Uh, campaigning is the wrong word, but he's made his thoughts on the fact that he gets no credit for what he did with that show uh, very well known. I mean, he even posted a screenshot of the end of uh, Into the Spider-Verse and No Way Home, where they give special shout out to all the people that have come up with this concept and his name is nowhere to be seen. So I'm giving him a shout out because uh, that's definitely the first time that I experienced it. Yeah, and in fact, that's if I remember right, that also led to the um, the Spider-Man Unlimited show, right? Because that's it ends yeah. with getting sucked into the portal, and then Spider-Man Unlimited. He's in a whole different dimension, a whole different world. He's got a whole new suit and stuff like that. It um, it didn't they didn't directly connect, but they definitely took the ideas and ran with it for that. Cool. I think that will do it. <laughs> We're hitting two hours. I think that's good. Um, but man, this was a blast. Thank you so much for letting me talk about this movie uh, because I don't always, you know, we talked about it a little bit on action for everyone, but I certainly don't have the outlet to do like a two hour deep dive on this movie. Um, and and I, I felt the same way when, when Lindsay Wilkins from Schlock and all let me come on and talk about Spider-Man too. Like, I don't always have the outlet to talk about the movies that I want to talk about. So I really appreciate you letting me come on and do this. I um, I will, I will say now, and this goes out to anybody listening who may also feel the same as Mike does in anything that they do. The reason why I titled this, ep uh, this show Action Addicts is because aside from the fact that the majority of people that are listening to this are probably people who are addicted to action films, I didn't want to narrow what i could talk about down to one particular medium today we're talking about spider-man and it's two hours tomorrow i might talk about uh gary daniel's cold harvest and um 
I might only talk about it for 40 minutes, but then on the following day, I might talk about the show Warrior, which is not even a film. And that's kind of how I want this to roll. It's probably going to not help in retention of viewers or listeners, but it will mean that people are free to talk about what they want to talk about. And I'm not really worried about the format. As long as everybody's enjoying it, I think the people that are listening will enjoy us being passionate about what we're talking about. And that's all that matters, man. I always tell this to people. My good friend, Kenny B from Podcast on Fire Network, when I first got into podcasting, told gave me this little bit of advice and I've really internalized it, which is only you have your voice and only you have your ability to talk about things the way that you can. And as long as you're passionate and as long as you're authentic about it and as long as you're willing to do the work, uh, which is, you know, the editing and the stuff like that on the back end that you have to do, you're going to find an audience. It might not be huge, but it will be dedicated. You will find people that want to hear what you have to say. And you just, you always have to trust that every time I get down about doing a podcast, I just, I always remind myself of that, that nobody else in the world talks about movies. Like I talk about movies because nobody else in the world is me and nobody else in the world is going to talk about movies and TV shows and stuff like you because nobody else is you just always make sure to trust in that. Um, as you're doing this, it'll, it'll help keep you going. Yeah, man. And I, I will say, I completely agree with that because if everybody talked about films like you did, your podcast wouldn't be where it is right now. So <laughs> proof is in the pudding. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. All right, man. I got a peace out. Uh, but this has been a blast. Thanks, Scott. No worries, dude. And I will see you later. Thank you for joining me. All right, and that is the end of the episode. Thank you very much for Mike for joining me. I'm recording this little bit at the end just because, you know, I wanted to say thank you to everybody that's listening. And also, just before you go, if you're still here, I really do appreciate that. I know this was a long one, so I thank you for sticking it out to the end. Next week, we are going to be joined by Rob Antiquera, who you will be more familiar as the Cinema Drunkie. He is on Twitter. He is a big part of the Action Twitter community. He hosted a podcast that you may be familiar with called The Action Drunkies, which is recently rebranded into The Cinema Drunkies. Now, I was very excited to have Rob on because we talk about his favorite Chuck Norris film, and that is Invasion USA. So if this episode wasn't really your cup of tea, well, you probably not listened this far into it, in which case, yeah, I know. But if, if, you, if you gave it a chance and you got to the end, well, be excited because next week we're going back to the 1980s and we're going to... Rock it out with the machine guns. And then, well, there's a couple of surprises coming, so we'll see what happens after that. But all i got to say is thank you very much for listening. I've been your host, Scott Wiley, and thank you for getting into the action with me, and I will see you all next time. On the Action Addicts Podcast!